Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. How is everybody doing all around the world? Thank you so much. Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Okay, so I, <laughs> I have to tell you what. So when I first started this podcast, I had a list of people I wanted to talk to who worked with animals, who made a difference in the world. And I'll tell you what, the guests we have on today were at the very top of my list. And I'm not, you guys, I'm not joking. Can you guys hear that? Today, the very top of my list, we have Derek and Beverly Jobert. They're award-making filmmakers, National Geographic explorers, they're wildlife conservationists, they've been working in Africa and filming African wildlife, in particular big cats, for over 30 years. And I'm not kidding you, I have VHS tapes of their work that I used to watch as a kid. I still have them. I can't wait to show them to my kids one day. It was so funny, like, and you're going to hear this during our interviews, and I'm just, like, showing them. They're like, oh, we did this project back in the day. And I'm like, hold on, just wait. I probably have that VHS. And I did. I was so excited to talk to them. And it's, like I said, it's been, like, two years in the making, and I'm so happy they took the time to, like, just, just to talk to me for, like, over an hour And we just go over so many amazing topics. I get to talk to them about filming some animals that I love seeing in the wild, like lions, hyenas, wild dogs, elephants, hippos, wildebeest, like zebra, like the list goes on. We also talk about an animal that I have always wanted to see in Africa, but it's always evaded me. The leopard, which they have so many amazing encounters, an amazing documentary. You're going to hear more. But the coolest part about having this podcast is like asking them how they were able to get this job. Like all of you, right? Like listening to the show, these people have dream jobs working with animals. Like, how did you do this? Like, how did you meet? Like, how did you become, you know, National Geographic Explorers? That's amazing. So, In this interview, you're going to find that all, it's like in depth and it's amazing. And I just have to say, I think, well, actually, no, I did. I fanboyed out a little bit and which is crazy for me because I've been working on TV for like 15, actually, no, no, 16 years. And when you work on these national shows, you know, um, you know, you meet a lot of celebrities. So I've met a lot of celebrities, Jay Leno, Sam Jackson, Jennifer Lopez, Pamela Anderson, she was cool. So I'm just saying, like, I've met a lot of celebrities, but like, legit, I would have like when I when I was talking to Derek and Beverly, I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I'm talking to Derek and Beverly. So you'll probably hear me fanboy out a lot, but I mean, who cares, right? I mean, I don't know. I just I was so excited to just talk to them and just you know the work they're doing to you know, spread the message, you know, helping to save these large African, you know, like African carnivores is amazing. So I know you are going to love this interview before, as always, if you have not already, please make sure to subscribe to the channel, make sure to rate us on iTunes. It really helps me out. Also on the social channels, make sure to follow at Corbin Maxi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and I'll also include links to Derek and Beverly uh, Joe Bear's social links because it's amazing. They have some amazing content, which I cannot wait to share with you. All right. I think it's time you guys please welcome to the show, the legendary Derek and Beverly Joe Bear. I just want to say 
Thank you so much for doing this. I am such a fan. I've been, I mean, I'm serious. Like, I'm honestly starstruck. And I work with celebs a lot, and I'm just like, I can't even believe it. Well, thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thanks for setting it up and being persistent. Yes, it took two years to get you guys on. But I was like, I have to get these guys on the podcast. And I'm serious. And when I first started this, I think we're almost 75 episodes in. I was like, you guys were at the top of my list, like dream interview. So thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. It's great. Great to hear from you. Okay. Let's, let's hope that two years was worth waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> Can I show you guys something? Yeah, please do. Okay. Look at this. These are from when I was a kid. My old VHS tapes. Back in the day. <laughs> I I'm such a fan. And... Anyway, I just, like I said, some of my favorites, I would love to get more in depth with these, but tell me, how did you get your start? I mean, you guys are award-making, you know, filmmakers, conservationists, you have dream jobs. Take me back. Well, we do have dream jobs, and uh, we met in high school, and so uh, getting that right first was important to us, and falling in love, and then deciding to to leave and head out into the bush, and then we designed a career around around that initial passion of ours for each other and for Africa. And uh, we headed out, first of all, really started studying lions and, um, and then found a film camera and then evolved into that, but we're still studying lions, so we didn't get very far. <laughs> but the remarkable thing about that time is that it was obviously a new journey for us and it truly was exploring as old explorers because we were one of the first to do nocturnal work. And as we were studying lions, we were studying them at nighttime for many years. It went over a seven-year period. And what we were seeing was so unique. Nobody had seen it before. Nobody, in fact, scientists were even challenging uh, what we were, you know, um, uh, sort of speaking about and writing about. And so that's where, as Derek said, I picked up the cameras and started filming. And so I think we were lucky. We were allowed to unveil something that had been seen before. It wasn't that we were just, you know, emulating other um, filmmakers out there. And it gave us that step to be um, taken seriously, I would say, with National Geographic. It gave us that foot in the door. And from then on, um, our passion for the big cats um, has grown um, over a 38-year period, right to the point that um, 10 years ago, we started the Big Cat Initiative at National Geographic. And, of course, that is to protect all the big cats in Africa. But we can get on to that a little more. Oh, of course. I'm roughly when you started, how many lions were estimated in the wild? Uh, interesting. <clears throat> so when Beverly and I were born, there were 450,000 lions. And when we started working with them, roughly 200, 250,000 lions. Wow. Uh, when we did a film called Lions of Darkness, we got estimates then. Hold on, hold on, were, hold on. Sorry. this is one of my favorites sorry go ahead Derek (laughs) but then you know there were about 45,000 now they're 20,000 and so we've seen this 95% crash in lions in our lifetime and it's it's not just lions it's leopards and tigers and cheetahs and and basically all the big cats are are in free fall I just I mean was this your first documentary the lions of darkness was that the first one you know, it's yeah. it's not. Um, we did a film that uh, that nobody ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Go ahead. Yeah, no, well, thanks for reminding us of that. Um, 
that was a film called Hunters. Then we went on and we did a film called Stolen River. Uh, shortly after, we did Journey to Forgotten River, and then we did Eternal Enemies. And Eternal Enemies was about that. Oh, he's reaching again. Um, there it is. <laughs> and I'm so sorry my dog got a hold of it, and I felt so embarrassed to show you guys. But this is how classic <laughs> this is. My wife's like, don't show them that. I was like, I have to. I mean, this is just like a classic. Anyway, go ahead. When you set out on a battle, it would be worth a fortune today, even with the dog bar. Um, Eternal Enemies, as you know, then, was, was about this... Uh, with this conflict, this eternal conflict between lions and hyenas. And it was a classic, and it, and it did actually become a bit of a cult film. And as Beverly says, we were revealing the stuff that nobody had ever seen before. And uh, up until that point, most people thought that hyenas were these sort of lurking creatures that were circling around lions at night and picking up scraps. What we revealed, in fact, is that they were doing most of the kills and the killing. And the lions were very often scavenging from them. And so these, these epic battles are emerging all over uh, between lions and hyenas. And it's really, it pivots on the, on the male lions. And so within an area, if there are male lions, and the reason for male lions in many cases is to, is to win the, the food for, for the pride. Otherwise, the hyenas will take it. So that was one of our early films that we won any awards for. Yeah, and in the early days, um, so um, I suppose our 20s and 30s, even into the 40s, we really were romanticizing um, what was happening in the wild. And it was a time truly to be able to do that because everything seemed to be secure and protected. Our last 20 years has, uh, you know, still romanticizing, but... I think the fury that we are feeling and being angered by the atrocities and seeing um, both decisions being made uh, purely out of ignorance and greed, we no longer can only romanticize what is happening out there. We really do need to speak out. Um, and a lot of our films now will be looking at um, you know, uh, the reasons why uh, we're losing vast tracts of land. The reasons why we're losing these lines, as Derek said, 95% of them over that 50 to 60 year period. And so that is key in all our work um, up to today. I mean, not so long ago, 2011, we brought out a film called The Last Lines. Hold on, hold on. And that was. Hold on. Ah, yeah. <laughs> and it was DVD, so you. And it, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm even at. Hold on. I, this is so crazy. Hold on. And we have this one, the accompany one. There you go. Oh, there we go. Got the book as well. That is yeah. fantastic. Which proves the one thing is that you are able to read as well as write. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I tell you I'm a big fan, I don't want you guys to be like, this guy's so full of it. You know what I mean? No, I'm serious. Anyway, go ahead, Last Lion. Sorry, Beverly. <laughs> But, well, I'm pleased to see that you do have the last lines because I was getting worried that you were only stuck in our early years and you haven't progressed. <laughs> that is, that's actually, actually, you just led me to my next question. Really quick, we'll get back to last lines, but do you look at these old documentaries and are you embarrassed? Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that. You know what I mean? Or do you look back or are you are you proud of this work? Um, no. <laughs> um, difficult, interesting question. So we, we almost never look at them again. So there's a window of one or two years that we will watch them again, uh -huh. primarily to, and we watch them with audiences, which is great. So we always, if we're having a screening, we're not those sort of filmmakers who will 
step out and go and have a beer and come back in again at the end for the applause. We watch uh, because that's part of the learning curve. So it's nice to know that people are getting the flow and the energy and the jokes or the sadnesses. So we watch. But then once a film's done and dusted after a couple of years, we, we put it away and we don't watch it again. Um, and that's and we also very seldom, I'm embarrassed to say, watch anybody else's work um, because the, the stories that we have in our heads uh, are pure until we realize that maybe somebody else has had a stab at it before. So we don't really want to be influenced by that, either in some way trying to replicate that or staying away from it for the wrong reasons. So, so our wildlife viewing experience is probably a lot less than yours, actually. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Beverly. Go, go back onto the last lines. I just was so curious. No, absolutely. Well, well, the last lines, I mean, the, the, the title we chose was really, I mean, it was provocative. It was asking, um, you know, everybody to think about, are we using uh, the lines at such an alarming rate? And are we going to get to that point where extension, you know, is imminent? And, um, but the film was a docu-feature, so it allowed us to release it um, in cinemas around America. And it allowed us to open up a conversation. Uh, because the way we ended is, you know, this is the problems. We need to address them immediately. And that conversation was opened up about the conservation of lions um, globally. And in fact, GRE used to remember the, the, the numbers. But I know in a, in a six-month period, I think we reached over 95 million people just in the discussion alone. And so our films are possibly challenging people a lot more because we can't only celebrate the animals now. We do need to all be part of the um, protection mechanism in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I live here in the States. I've been fortunate enough to go to Africa a few times, but I feel like growing up, we didn't realize there was such an issue with lions. I mean, I feel like a lot of people here think, oh, they're, you know, Africa's full of lions, you know, and it's like, actually not. It's, it's, it's a very, you know, it's a dire situation. Well, it is interesting because there are two things about that statement. One is that uh, because of the lion social structure, uh, when you see lions, you generally see a lot of them. You see 8, 10, 12. So you get the perception that there are a lot of lions. Um, the negative side of that is that they've trusted. And so you can imagine that of the 20,000 lions that are left, there are not that many prides, actually. And mm -hmm. so if a, if a pride comes under threat, you lose big bites of the population. So so lions have got the potential to to grow quite fast, but also to diminish very rapidly. Unlike leopards, for example, where you see one every 10 or 12 kilometers and well, you don't see them at all, but they, they spread out and it's reflective in the numbers. So so there are probably twice as many leopards today as there are lions, even though they're solitary. But he's seen eye of the leopard. And if he has a little package at the back there on eye of the leopard. I'm so embarrassed. And you know what? Here's the deal though, and I I know, I, I don't even care. I I'm such a fan. And you know what? I've I've been to Africa twice and I'll tell you I'll tell you what, the only animal I mean obviously I love all the animals, but I wanted to see the leopard in it evaded me every time and I went to the Masai Mara in Kenya which is full of leopards in any way but uh, yeah let's jump to this this is one of my favorite films you ever did let's talk about this famous leopard well what's interesting in fact uh, it, it, the part of the conversation you've just had is now much more relevant because 
Uh, we had been working, as Beverly said, on, on covering areas where, there's, uh, where it's pristine and beautiful and intact for half of our careers. And then we decided to, to study leopards and to do a film on leopards. And the way that we went about that, because all the leopard films we had seen up until that point, and we had watched others, or been aware of others, were all about leopards at night. And so we decided to cover leopards during the day, uh, because they don't cease to exist during the day. Um, but it was interesting because we, when you film something at night, or certainly most of the time you film at night, you isolate the animal and it's no longer in its environment visually. And so we wanted to film leopards during the day because they, they melt into the forest. They are so much a, a component of that environment. And so we did this film on leopards and it took us forever. Um, but on day one out in the field, we found Lachadima, this little leopard that's a key character. And she was eight days old and we followed her for the next four years. Um, but for me, what was important, and we'll get back to some of the stories within that, is during the filming of that um, story with that leopard, we then started investigating and discovered that, in fact, 10,000 leopards had been killed legally. Oh, my goodness hunting permits and associated killing. And they were all as good a character as Lachadima, the one that we found, just nobody had seen them or given them names yet. And so we realized that we needed to become a voice for the voiceless and, and, and lean forward and start talking about this. And that's why we started the Big Cats Initiative, because of that little leopard. After this, and, because this leopard. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and she stole our hearts. I mean, she really did. Uh, you know, discovering her and having the opportunity and the privilege to be able to spend so much time with her. And then just to see her character develop. And because we were never a threat to her, she accepted us first as part of the forest. Then it appeared that she accepted us a little more with, as you know, the, the, the curiosity in a cat. Um, but she would always be watching us. Her mother would go off hunting, we would still be there. And so again, she was curious. But now she was accepting the fact that she wasn't alone, whereas once her mother would go off, she would be alone. And it was evident that there came a time in her life that we were more than just part of the forest, we were more than another animal. There was a time that we felt that we were a surrogate um, nanny for her in so many ways. I mean, through the progression of being with her and watching her grow, we had magical moments where We've always had a policy of never intervening and never interfering, and then obviously never trying to tame an animal. But in every way, she broke all those boundaries herself. I think she tamed us. Um, she would utilize us in a way that um, our vehicle uh, would be part of, of uh, you know, her forest, so that if there was danger coming, instead of going up a tree, she would climb underneath our car and she would work out. Uh, we would end up by having the big dangerous elephant looming over us, towering over us and sort of going, I can smell the leopard, but where is it? And then move off or if uh, baboons were walking by. But we had one magical moment after the other uh, with her. She certainly changed. She, she seduced us. She changed our lives in that way. This is, yeah, I think this one and Eternal Enemies is probably my two favorite, you know, films that you guys have done. And But this one is just, 
the, okay, so there's a scene in this film, which I'm sure you guys know, where she is just, you know, chasing butterflies. And and she's almost killed by a line. And I'll tell you what, I'm like biting my fingernails. Is it hard not to intervene when you're when you are in these environments and you get attached to these animals for four years? Are you I mean, is it hard? It truly is hard. In fact, Eric used to laugh at me because, um, uh, you know, obviously the main goal for us to be out there is not to intervene and to document. And so to be able to document, you really have to be sharp, alert, focused and have your whole attention, you know, behind the camera, filming, photographing, doing sound, whatever it is. But when it came to this little creature, I think I had so much of her, um, you know, will to survive. And it was a little bit like parents and, and wanting to protect a child. But my whole body, my whole nervous system would start to shake. And I would have to lean back and take a remedy called rescue remedy to just <laughs> And in context, in fact, her mother had lost five cubs before this one. Yeah. So oh. for the three months or eight months, we only called her number six. So we didn't give her a name because uh, her mother was likely to lose her again. Uh -huh. And so this little character, not she didn't just overcome whatever those other things, the prunes and lions and all those, those other threats. Mm -hmm. Um, but she, she overcame her, her history and the mother who had not been successful up to this point. Oh my goodness. Can I ask, I mean, cause, cause you filmed, so this came out in 2006. What was the last update, right? Cause she's probably not still with us, right? No, she's not. But, uh, so we went back to so funny because we filmed that in 2006 and we were so in love with this little effort that the film was finished and we looked at each other and went, oh, how are we going to go back? So we went back in and we, we did a follow-up film and we did a, a book and we did a, another film and all about her. So we continued with her for five, six years. Um, but it was quite interesting because we left our vehicle at one of the local safari camps. And um, while we were away finishing this film, we got a message from the safari camp saying, when are you coming back? And we went, well, why would you care? But they said, no, there's a leopard that comes in every day and sleeps under your vehicle. Oh, so she had identified our vehicle and was there waiting for us to come back a lot of the time. It's so funny. But um, then I think about three years ago now, uh, we stopped seeing her. So she, and, but by then she'd had four cubs and she had done her part, you know. So she had put cubs out into the environment. Yeah, leopards normally only live to about um, 15 years old. And, um, and often what happens when she's had cubs, uh, they will take over the territory. So she ends up by getting a smaller and smaller territory, if they're strong. But she did that to her mother. And um, once uh, Lakadima took over that territory, I mean, it was a year, and then we never ever saw her mother again. So we could only presume that the mother had moved into a smaller territory and probably hadn't survived further. So we're... Uh, we found another leopard that's got the most incredible eyes, um, green-colored eyes. That's, in fact, the film is called Jade. Have you got it there behind you? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I have. I have this oldie though. <laughs> oh, look at you two! Look at that! <laughs> I do not have that one, Derek. Well, and I'll tell you why. That's because it hasn't come out yet. I was just joking with that. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> 
But uh, no, we're following this little leopard at the moment that we found up in the near the Masai Mara, and she's got these beautiful aqua jade eyes, and uh, that's a film that'll come out next year. Oh my goodness, I cannot wait. Now, so when you're out in the bush, I mean, you guys are pretty isolated, correct? You guys live out in the bush, right? Tell us, tell my listeners a little bit about that. So um, we've lived in tents for 38 years now. So for us, a home is a tent. And the tent is maybe, you know, five paces by seven paces, pretty small tents, enough that you can stand upright in, um, and uh, in a nearby kitchen tent. But most of the cooking that we do is over a fire. But for us, the real place that we live is in the vehicle. So we have a, a land cruiser that we've chopped in half and built onto and we, we can carry everything there for 10 days. And I think that's really our life, because when we're working during the day, sleeping in the vehicle, getting out way before dawn, picking up the mist as it comes off, off the Okabango, getting back late, downloading material, it's, a, it's 120% every day. It's 120% and it is tough and it is hot and it is dry um, and, you know, biting insects and that. But your, you and your viewership shouldn't, um, you know, uh, have any empathy for us because <laughs> we're living in the wealth of nature. And I think that is, you know, what we're soaking in every day. I mean, it's really what fills our souls. Um, and, and the thrill of the unknown unfolding in front of us, just when you think you know everything, you discover that it's just so very, very different. And it also depends on, you know, as we get environmental changes, and I hate to say some of the environmental changes are due to a global warming. And, uh, and so the animals start to interact a little differently. They might have to be um, pushed to an area where they wouldn't normally have to go and drink with, you know, five or six other different species, and especially with two of them being predators as well. And so that, I think, is, is um, quite a challenge but for them, but very interesting for us because we are still filming and discovering um, very unusual interactions and behavior. But it is a, it's a tough lifestyle, as Beverly says, and it's not, you know, it's not, you can't overlook that. Uh, we once had an assistant who spent uh, two weeks with us and then paid for his own charter to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's not for everybody. I love how you're like, we once had one assistant. <laughs> yeah, how, I mean, how long... Go ahead. We had. He's the only one who made it out. <laughs> how long are the? How long are the days? Because okay, for instance, I am not a filmmaker. How long does it take? Well, I guess you told me four years to take this, but let's go back to Eternal Enemies. I mean, how long does it take to make a film? Okay, so so that's an exception because that was mainly at night. It was two species that were very hard to film at night time. So that was a seven-year period, but. And of course, we did that nocturnal work, but now the challenges, and if you really do want to have some empathy, this is where you need to have it. Doing mm -hmm. nocturnal work is extreme. It batters your psyche in so many ways. I mean, your, your mental and emotional state um, is tough because you're never really sleeping. You're never really getting sleep more than two hours, and two hours is what you need to you know, go into your memory bank where you start to log memories and all of that. And Derek and I were never getting that. We were staying up um, through the night. But, you know, if the lions fell asleep, he would fall asleep with his head on the, um, 
on the, um, what do you call it, yeah, the yeah. steering wheel and, you know, <laughs> on, on top of the vehicle sort of slide down and, and just fall asleep for brief moments. And so we did. We felt um, exhausted, but the anxiety that was going through us and the adrenaline that was pumping through us on a nightly basis was extreme. I mean, it was a time that um, I suppose it's impossible to go back to because it took so much out of us. So that's why that film took so long. Nocturnal work and, you know, waiting for those very unusual moments. And in fact, one of the 11th hour um, in shooting uh, Eternal Enemies was on Christmas morning at 6 in the morning. And everybody had said, come on, you guys, don't you think you've done enough of this? Look what you're looking like. You're exhausted. Stop. And we said, no, no, no. You never know why so you guys are all celebrating Christmas, what we're going to get. And that's that moment where that male line in Twardamela comes charging out and challenges the matriarchal hyena. And that was at you know, 6 a.m. in the morning. We, we developed a, <clears throat> a deep appreciation for the hundreds of millions of people around the world that do shift work and that work through the night. It's really difficult. It's not a natural thing to do. And so, uh, you know, it affected our memory. It affected our sleep patterns. Uh, we were working in, in 40, 50 degrees uh, Celsius heat, 120 degrees during the day. And so you can't sleep in that tent. We're not in the tent anyway. So our sleep patterns were disrupted and really difficult to work. Yeah. So, but now, mostly, and we try to avoid night work now to a large degree <laughs> for, for various reasons. <laughs> But uh, now our day sort of starts off like this. We awaken at about four in the morning um, and then head out as quickly as possible. We try and get out to, to where we're going to be filming by 4.35 um, because where we're living at the moment in Duga Plains in Botswana, about 100, 120 days a year there's a mist that comes off the water and hangs there like a glorious white blanket. Um, just as the sun's rising, and it's beautiful. And our ambition is every day to get something in that gorgeous backlit mist. So we want to be in position. So we race around like maniacs, and we try and find elephants or lions or giraffe or something in that mist, and then uh, film that and then go on to film the next three or four or five hours while the light is gorgeous. And then because we're out there, we might uh, then start looking after ourselves, feeding, maybe doing a bit of exercise out there, uh, maybe reading a little bit, following the lines, and preparing ourselves for the second version of that, which was the late afternoon, beautiful light again. And then getting back into camp around 8, 9, quickly downloading, having a meal, prepping for the next day, go to sleep up at 4 o'clock in the morning. So it's a, it's a passionate and obsessive lifestyle. Yeah, I was going to say, are you ever afraid? Are you both afraid of missing out? You know, like, oh, what if we... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Beverly's looking at me like, every day. <laughs> like, missing out, though, on that shot, you know? Right? Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things we're not afraid of missing out on is is how fashion changes or what's going on in towns. But every single day, that family of lions that we're working with, or the leopard, is doing something, and doing something extraordinary. So even while we're talking to you now, Something extraordinary is going on out there, and oh, possibly I feel awful. something. Uh, <laughs> so that was that was nice. Thanks very much. Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> it's okay, Derek's like, don't worry, something amazing's happening right now and we're stuck doing this interview with you. <laughs> amazing is so, so in our next film you'll see a section that that'll that'll be a beautiful leopard coming down in the afternoon light. Um, and then it'll go to black and we'll say, right here, we had an interview with Corbin um, <laughs> and we missed it. But anyway. And he was this uh, crazy fan who had all of our VHS. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so, so we do have fear of missing out because there are these stories all the time. One of the things that we do consciously say to each other is if, it, if we didn't see it, it didn't happen. And if we didn't get it on camera, it didn't happen either. So you can't be depressed about. Yeah, and Corbin, it's important for us to actually be out there um, and to, you know, live that that time, whether it is whether we're getting exhilarated or emotionally depressed in, in what we um, are witnessing, because it's important for our films to have that same emotional sort of roller coaster ride. But you were asking on how long a film takes, and you know, as we've shown, that's two different films that you've chosen. Uh, one was seven years and I the left was four years, but then there will be a film that will take a year. And that film will be, we possibly have been researching it over a longer period, but the filming of that film will be a year and then about five to six months in the editing. In fact, right now we're in the edit phase, uh, but we took on something a little larger and there was a four-part series on the Okavango, which is quite a challenge very interesting and very diverse because the bio um, maths and the, um, the the interesting you know interactions between tiny little critters to the large icon, you know, iconic animals and so we did everything from go underwater everything that lives topside everything that utilizes water and in fact water is even one of our characters so it is a film that um, when we editing keeps us equally as immersed in being out there because we're reliving a lot of it, but it's allowing us to now, you know, I suppose, stitch the film together so that we can share it with the rest of the world. And also I think in that process, there's an intellectual journey we're having all the time as yeah. well. So it's not as if we're going out for finding the lines of sex, filming the lines and, and getting back again. For us, it's about... Um, who are these lines? What are they doing? How do we get into a mental state where the leopard that we're following, we know so well that we understand what she's going to do before she understands what she's going to do? So we're constantly working it, working it, working it. We're reading up all the research material. And as you rightly say, if, uh, if we'd given ourselves a brief and said, we're going to go to the Maasai Mara and do a film on cheetahs, you can sort of see... Uh, that we would be well qualified to do that and we'd know it. Mm. But we've said to ourselves, all right, we're going to go into the Okavango and we're going to do four-part, one-hour series on the Okavango. You go, holy crap, how do you start that? Where, <laughs> who, what? Yeah. I mean, how? So, that's the challenge. That's because you've made phenomenal films in the Aquavango. You know, the Eye of the Leopard, Last Lions. Are you, like, ever nervous? Like, how are we going to one-up these? I mean, because these are both amazing films like how i mean it's just i don't know how you could get any better but you guys continue to do and i'm genuinely mean that well thank you very much i think that the the competition in life is not against um your competitors 
it's against your internal journey. And so for, for us in many ways, um, we would take on another leopard film because of the, the journey that we've had since the last leopard film. So we'll be able to bring something new and different to it because we've matured five or six, ten years since then. Uh, we have a different outlook on it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it at all. So we wouldn't do another version of the same film we've done before. Mm -hmm. And also, um, you know, earlier I was mentioning that we can't only romanticize what's happening. We've got to look at some of the issues. Well, some of the issues are happening um, in land has been squeezed and, you know, animals are not being able to survive, or they've got to live very close, um, very closely to the communities that are cattle ranches. And so one of the films we released, um, is it two years ago, is called Tribe vs. Pride, and that's on the Maasai. Now, in this area, um, over a 10-year period, I believe it was 40 lions were being killed every year, oh. and it was purely because they were protecting their livestock, they were obviously protecting each other, and they felt that they didn't know how or were threatened and fearful of lions. And this project through our Big Cat Initiative, we were giving grants to individuals on the ground. Oh, and by the way, we've now got, I think, 120 grants um, sponsored right through Africa in 27 countries. So, and these are all working closely with communities and projects similar to this one. But this one was unique in how to speak to the Maasai how to work with them in an innovative way to talk about conservation, but also to replace an old cultural way. And the old cultural way was to get your manhood, you needed to kill a lion. And so coming up with the elders and um, our Great Plains Foundation and the Big Cat Initiative, uh, the Maasai Olympics were born. And the Maasai Olympics is now they get their manhood. Instead of getting a smelly tail that they take to the future pride, they now can hopefully take the trophy or cash or the big um, cow or bull that they've won. And so we decided um, it was important to also document um, because so many places through Africa, they might not be Maasai, but they also have cattle and they also have to live side by side. And so we doc documented this film, but it took over an eight-year period. Even though it was a happening event, um, in December every two years. And over the eight-year period, we then told the story through the Maasai. And that became incredibly um, received right through all areas that we showed it in, in Swahili and in Ma, in the, the Maasai language, but equally um, well-received globally. And so some of those films that are pure conservation films are still as important to show than, you know, only celebrating wildlife. Is it, is it hard? Like, do you get mad? Is it hard not to get mad when you see something like this going, like, you know, with the Maasai and killing the lions? Like, you know what I mean? Is it hard to control your emotions when they're, you know, killing these animals that you've studied for years? So, um, that's, with the Maasai, not so much, because we understand that, all that's happened there is they've had this 600-year relationship with lions, um, and the only reason that can't continue today is because uh, they were half a million Maasai 50 years ago, and today they're 2 million Maasai, and they were 2 million lions 150 years ago, and now they're 2,000 lions in Kenya. So that dynamic has switched over. Otherwise, it could continue today. Um, 
Now, what makes us depressed, I think, uh, for a short time and then we kick into action, is when uh, big governments make bad decisions. So where um, hunting flourishes suddenly or where um, big elephant populations are culled or where other, you know, or when we come across seven tons of pangolin scales. Oh, my God. You go, what? I've only seen 20 pangolins in my life. How did you manage to acquire, and they're tiny little thing. How did you manage to poach enough pangolins to give you seven tons of pangolins? So that sort of thing is shocking to us. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing that was shocking. I think I was reading, I think it was Africa Diaries or one of your other books where you followed up, and I I keep on going back to um, Eternal Enemies because it's one of my favorites, but you followed up on one of the lions who was the famous like um, hyena killer, correct? And you followed up, and he was shot by a trophy hunter. And it just was like, uh, just like, it took like my breath away. It was like, oh my God, this magnificent, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm like totally bringing the mood down, but it just was one of those, like, I just, anyway, it just was shocking. No, but you're right. And and I think that that there's a big emotion attached. I think um, many of the hunting fraternity will say that, you shouldn't be emotional about it because, you know, why should you photograph it? The emotional part of it is coming out and, and enjoying killing a lion. That's the emotional argument. Um, but the logical part of that is you can shoot it once and you can photograph it hundreds and thousands of times. So just economically, it doesn't make sense to go out and shoot the lion, besides the ethics and all of that other stuff. But... Um, no, we, there's a new era dawning in, in Africa, and, and hunting is thankfully disappearing. Uh, Cecil the lion had a lot to do with that, and I'm sad that a lion had to give up his life to to create such a such a groundswell against uh, the hunting industry. But it's time has come. It's an old colonial relic that that really is not acceptable anymore. Yeah. I, I agree. And I'm so happy. I think you guys have agreed to with social media with, you know, people being able to have access to information and, you know, Cecil was a huge, a huge thing. And that was like, that was huge. That was a, you yeah, know, yeah. yeah. So it definitely helped save that. That's just amazing. Okay. So I'm going to ask you guys a hard question. Are you ready? Yeah, go for it. This is going to be hard. Okay. Do you guys have like a favorite memory in the bush? Um, we have so many memories, not a favorite one, but I do remember... Uh, and it's definitely not a favorite one, but I'll, I'll give it a stab anyway. Um, on this last production, um, I was trying to film leeches. And <laughs> I was not expecting that, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You weren't, you weren't expecting that, right? And um, the leeches in certain parts of the shallow water in the Okavango are unbelievable, and they mean little things. So they start off at about, you know, about an inch long and almost thin. You can't even see them. And uh, if you get down at surface level and you've got to get into the water to do this, um, you just see them coming for you, like thousands coming towards you. Oh, my gosh. And of course, the minute they bite into you, uh, they get quite thick, so they'll get the size of your finger because they've sucked all your blood. So these are not nice things, generally. Um, I mean, most people don't like hyenas. I don't like leeches. Uh, <laughs> So they, the they kind of freak me out. So the favorite part of this is... <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> so Beth always stands on the bank and says, 
Why are you jumping around like that? Get the shot, get the shot. I'm saying there are leeches, lots of them, and they're biting me, and that's all. Uh, and she'll say, I oh, don't be a girl, you know, or something like that. Anyway, so then I said, actually, what I want to do is I want to get a photograph, some film of a leech biting into somebody's skin, and then, uh, and then watching that. So Beverly said, I'll do that. So we put a leech onto Beverly's arm, and of course, it bit into and started sucking and getting, and then she freaked out. <laughs> she went, no. That's favorite. So that I quite enjoyed. I mean, I'm sure you did. She said, get, get this thing off me, get it off me, get it off me. But I think our favorite moments are really with leopards and lions. Absolutely. I mean, we had so many wonderful ones with that little lacodema. And I think it was her just um, accepting us. She would come up when we found her in the morning. Now, obviously, it's a challenge to find a leopard. You know, it's one foot pushing at a time in sand and on you go. Or just listening to that vervet monkey until we would find her. But when we would find her, it was almost as if, okay, let's start this all over again. We're going through a little routine. And she would come out and she would sit um, next to me with no doors. And then she would look with these gorgeous amber eyes just straight into mine. And then every now and again, she might tap my foot, but then she would go under the car and she would look at Derek equally, you know, the, the same amount of time. And then she would sometimes take her mouth and just put it over his foot oh. and then look up again and then go off. And then that was it. She was back in her natural environment, but that was a greeting. And so if you understand that we really can live side by side, with these creatures on the planet, and we do need to protect them. The world would be a soulless place if we allowed every animal to go extinct. And I feel that, you know, the, the, um, uh, that report that came out quite recently, that was the, 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 the UN talking about um, the million species, the IUCN with the million species. And we need to avoid that happening. Um, but, of course, you know, we all got to work a lot harder and we've got to change policies. But we also have to reach our politicians around the world so that they change policies and make it easier. We shouldn't be so greedy about just, you know, um, let's increase the industry, um, let's bring in more money, let's do more mining. I think we've got to make some decisions that are purely about protecting the environment. And ultimately, we'll be protecting it for ourselves. For me, there's, there's nothing that I enjoy more, really, than... And in the early, early hours of the of the night, morning, <coughs> waking up and listening to a, a lion, male lion calling out in the darkness. Um, and that otherwise total silence. And I'm reminded that, that if that voice goes silent, I no longer want to be there. You guys are so well-spoken. I'm just like, <laughs> you guys are taking me back to Africa. It's just amazing. Yeah, considering we only talk to each other, that's quite amazing. <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Does it get ever lonely? And did you ever, like when you were younger, you know, like seeing your friends and family have kids and these lives and they live in this suburban home and they have the dog, did you ever feel like you missed out? So, no. we. So, our lives are like, um, like an intense download. So, every single day is is filled with intensity. I think if we, I don't know, but if we had chosen to work in the desert where it was less biomass and less things coming at you, 
and more time to to think about other places in the world where it may be better, we might have developed that sense of missing out. But ours has been such a bombardment of visual, olfactory, intellectual stimulation that, that we never once went, oh, I wish that we lived in a, in a suburb in Connecticut. <laughs> yeah. Why Why Connecticut? That's so funny. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just, I oh, anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Really, um, I suppose in the um, in the eighties and the nineties, when we started out, you know, technology hadn't advanced. I mean, there's no communication through iPhones or or computers or anything like that. So no email um, contact. Everything we did was on radio. About three thousand other people were hearing our communication, and then that went, would go to a telex, and then that would get, reach you know the broadcaster. And that's how we started. So we truly weren't receiving. In fact, we missed a lot of the big historic moments uh, because we were so focused. We almost had blinkers on. And I think that's probably uh, made our film so much stronger because we loved it. We were there. We loved it. We weren't involved in anything else. It's actually a little harder now for us to separate what's happening globally and what's happening in our lives when we're out there. Although we're still out there living that day, but that evening we are doing the download of whatever's coming through on emails and the, the trials and tribulations that's happening on the planet. And so we sort of are now in a dual life in so many ways. And that's interesting. I think it does show in our films in another way because we now know how to reach people in what's happening in their own lives and how we can be more effective in touching their hearts. And we've become more and more as spokespeople for the environment and for these big cats and for rhinos and elephants that uh, we've had to be informed. We've had to understand um, intellectual trends, what people are saying, how they're going about it. So it's, for us, it's, we, we're not engaging with society because we love it. We're engaging with society because this is where the the big dramatic decisions are being made, and we better be well informed about the thinking yeah. behind that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, kind of switching topics just a little bit, does National Geographic give you pretty much free reign with your films and the editing, and you know what I mean? Do they give you just like a, you know, are you able to create your work and you send it in, or is it, you know what I mean? Yeah. So on touchy grounds, whatever we say, you could be getting us into trouble, and then we'll be hard. <laughs> okay, okay, don't get in touchy grounds, but it sounds like you guys have great, you know, like you're able to create your work. It sounds like they're a great organization to work for. To get chewed up by dogs, yeah. So the, um, the <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Choose a better job. I think that we've now had a, a long relationship with the National Geographic Society and now the National Geographic you know, television and, and books um, to the point where there's been a, 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 a foundation of trust. And so we won't take them a film that we don't 100% believe in. Um, you know, so we're not making it up along the way because when we walk in the door, we say, this is our next film. This is what we want to do. And I think they respect that um, rather than having to waste their time with something that we may or may not want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and we're never vague about 
what it is we're going to do within that frame. So we might say to them, we want to do a film on a little leopard that we're going to follow for a number of years from virtually from birth until virtually to death. Um, so that's pretty clear what, what's in there. Um, and so very often what happens is we'll go to them with that project and they will, in fact, all the time, so what I mean, we'll go to them with the project brief and, uh, and then they sign on. And then we see them a few years later. Nice. <laughs> Here's the film. And we'll show them rough cuts and various other things. But for a good number of years, uh, just to be polite and, and to have some sort of social engagement, we'll reach out and say, by the way, we're still working on this film. <laughs> um, so it's been, a great, uh, it's been a great relationship. Have you guys ever been filming and you get this great shot and then a tourist vehicle gets in the frame and you're just like, oh! You know, that, that does happen <laughs> but it just depends. I mean, most of the time we've chosen areas where we really can immerse ourselves in the area and the animals aren't going to be too disturbed. Uh, so it's normally in an area where it's a concession or a conservancy and not a national park. If you work in the national parks, we wouldn't have any hair today. We would be pulling our hair out all the time. And so, but, but you know, you've got to celebrate the fact that films are possibly bringing tourists in and these areas are being protected because it's bringing an economy to the country. And so that's one reason we won't go and film there, but we do celebrate that at least the country is appreciating wildlife and protecting it. On this last production uh, on the Okabanga, there was a moment that we had worked on for two and a half years. Um, and so we, we, got, <laughs> we got into position. The lions were coming through the floodplain to some water. And in fact, I took a risk and we drove all the way around the water. It took us 20 minutes to drive all the way around and get into position. So we had the water in the foreground, lions coming towards us because we knew that they were going to hunt lechery, red lechery antelope. And, uh, and there was a, a big male with his head down eating the, the soft green grasses in the water. And so I was able to really position, even adjust a little bit, and if the, if the lecture was going to run right, if the, I was going to get that. If it was going to run left, I was going to get that. Um, and I got some amazing material of the water with hippos in the foreground, lecture grazing, lioness coming in from the back. And I thought, this is golden. Nothing here can go wrong. This is the moment. <laughs> and uh, the next thing I could virtually hear my brief to the composer saying, and as that lioness steps up, she's going to go into slow motion. And I want violins and oboes and strings and cellos. <laughs> this is the moment. Anyway, she did. She jumped up and she chased in. And it was gorgeous. It was perfectly in frame. She came in. The left way decided to break the left, which would not have been ideal for me. But anyway, followed her along. And I got this great panning shot. The left way is running to the left. The lioness and the oboes are coming in. And... Uh, off we go, they get closer and they get closer and they get closer. And out of my eye, out of the left side, I look with my left eye and I go, Beverly, this is going to happen exactly where you're sitting, right behind you. You have to get up. 
So Beverly swings her camera, jumps up, and the kill happens exactly behind her camera. I missed it. I missed oh, it. no! <laughs> oh, my gosh! <laughs> the, the, the good thing is, we're still married. And, uh, <laughs> and the camera didn't end up in the river. And so, yeah, I think... But interestingly enough, you know, we actually miss more than we get. So when we were doing all that nighttime work, um, we were following lines and we were writing a scientific paper on it at the same time. And I remember the, the stats of that during that time, I think it was seven years ago, um, we had seen 1,236 kills. So there was a lot going on. Those lines were killing every night, two, three times a night. We filmed 27 kills. Wow. So of the 1,236 that actually happened, we missed most of that. And so it's, it's, uh, it's not a game of great success. Is it difficult to film a kill? Extremely difficult as a result. Um, and I think that the kill is not, funny enough, the kill is not the, uh, is not the award shot for me. Um, so we filmed about two or three hundred kills now, and I've filmed three births. Wow. So wow. we've filmed a couple of Thompson gazelle births, births I think, and a lion births, so there's one. So, and an elephant. And close to an elephant. Yeah. So the moment of birth is actually more precious to us as filmmakers than the moment of death. Yeah, I remember. But, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but the kill is the challenge because it's not about, you know, just ripping into the flesh. It is that whole moment from the stalking, you know, that's, that's a challenging time where are they going to get closer? Are they going to be able to, you know, break into the run? And so it's following it all the way through. And then, of course, that chase moment um, either can go behind the car, on the other side of the car, or that moment, you know, that Derek had where it was behind my lens, really, or it runs away. It's very seldom that it actually goes from left to right so that it's right in camera viewing and, you know, you can do that slow pan and capture it. A little bit like that um, Eternal Enemy shot, you know, with the bail line mm -hmm. coming in. That was magical because that happened in our framing. And Derek had it's almost like a 360, you know, panning across to be able to capture it. We don't always have that. And I think that is the challenge and that is heartbreaking because over a four-year period, we were trying desperately to capture a lechware hunt, lions leching, I mean, lions, um, you know, stalking in and getting this aquatic um, um, animal, which is the lechware. And so over a four-year period, and then this happens towards the end of our production, but then, of course, it's bittersweet at the same time. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, kills are, are, are part of our lives because we studied predation. Um, and most certainly in, in modern documentaries, you expect to see predator kills. Um, and, 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 it's, and it's right to. I mean, you don't um, spend time exposing the lives of lions that make their living from killing and then just ignore that moment. And I've always found it fascinating to be in the presence and within the activity of, of anything that's, that's an expert that's doing it really well. So 
lions hunting in the plains, leopards hunting in the forest, um, somebody composing, somebody writing, an artist painting. I think there's a certain magic or quality about being there at the presence of, and being in the presence at the moment of things creating or, or doing what they're expert at. And that's why we're fascinated with predators killing. Yeah, and I remember reading, and I believe it was in the Africa Diaries, but Beverly, you mentioned when you were um, filming lions who specialized in killing elephants, just how it was very emotional. Like it was just, I mean, I guess like, I mean, do you still get emotional when you are filming these kills or when, you know, because they're such charismatic animals? Yeah, and, and you know, we, we're always very, very sensitive at a kill uh, because knowing that an animal has given its life. In fact, we almost, you know, think of the, um, the American Indian philosophy of paying respect to that animal that has now given its life to these uh, creatures. And I think it's probably what we all need to be doing, you know, if we're still carnivores in our own lives. We need to constantly be aware that a creature has given us the food that we're eating. And so, yes, very respectful, but certain animals more than others will make um, one, you know, feel the, the that that tug of emotion, and definitely a lion. I mean, a, a lion killing a elephant because it takes a long time. Elephants are these sentient beings. Um, their eyes look at you with such sort of concern and and oh. pulling you in at the same time, almost asking for help. I mean, there was one moment when we witnessed um, lions bringing down an elephant calf of about six um, years old. And this trunk was sort of reaching out towards us. And there was nothing we could do. Absolutely nothing. There was about eight lines bringing this calf down. And uh, we were there purely to document it and understand, you know, these situations. To interfere or intervene would not be the course that we would ever take in a situation like that. When it's animal, um, you know, a, a wild situation playing out its game. But if it was man that um, had captured this calf and had it in a snare or it was, had a bullet wound, we would straight away get in vets and obviously intervene. In the filming of these kills, uh, you won't ever see celebration in our vehicle, even if we filmed it, um, which is cause for celebration professionally. But we will never high-five and say, we got that kill. Uh, there's always, and we've trained ourselves to do this, there's always a moment of reflection and, and uh, reverence um, each time there's an animal that dies. But it is funny about the elephant. It almost feels as though um, wildebeest in the migration are going to get hammered by crocs and lions and things. But in many ways it feels like elephants don't deserve to die, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that just sounds so emotional. Okay, I know you guys have to go, but it's okay. Just one last question, okay, or maybe yeah. two, if that's okay. Uh, is there some animal that you have always wished you wanted to film that you would still like to, you know, uh, pursue, like your dream animal or wildlife situation? Oh gosh, and um, you know, I think they actually are many. Um, um, I've always loved orangutans. And I just think it would be incredible to be close to the orangutans and film them in um, a complete 
natural um, setting. I'm not talking about you know um, going into an area where they've been protected. Although I think that would be equally as special because you would have that close connection to them. Um, and many of the primates, um, I've enjoyed being with them. So is that the fascinating, um, you know, the fascination that we have because we are a primate as well? I'm not sure, but they have intrigued me. For me, um, if we've got such a thing as a bucket list, um, for me it would be polar bears. I'd like to spend time with polar bears, and uh, I would probably need to wear long pants rather than shorts. But <laughs> no, I'd love to spend time with polar bears, getting to know them in a way that is not cursory, in a way that we do either the leopard or we do the last lines. You know, get in there for a couple of years, work them, get to know the individuals, and really see what they do. And then, of course, um, I thought you were going to say tigers. That's why I didn't mention yeah. it. But we've always wanted to uh, spend time with tigers. Yes. Tigers and but I yeah. found it so interesting. In the book, you mentioned that you had a premonition that if we were to go, I think it was Russia, right, to go to film, that yeah. you possibly might not come back. You could possibly die. I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, yeah it is. I think that uh, we had a bad feeling about Russia, and we did. I got very, very ill there. Um, but the, we'd like to go back, and I think that there are places in India that we've been to more recently that we've fallen in love with, um, and so we might. We might circle back to, to tigers at some point. We're doing a film on cheetahs at the moment, which is uh, also very different. What's so fascinating, actually, is as a cameraman, um, I found a, a big um, cultural change in the way I was moving the camera when I went from working with lions to working with leopards. There's a pace to leopards that caught me off guard. You know, for a good example is I can almost in my sleep, if a lion's walking along, I'm tracking it, and it goes behind a bush, I'll keep going and I'll, when, I, when it comes out of the bush, my frame is there and I just keep going smoothly. When I started working with yeah. leopards, the leopard was way ahead of me. And I was going, wow, this thing's moving faster than and certainly we're finding that with cheetahs now, and we found a different pace with the tigers as well. So it's not just point the camera and then get involved in the story. It's a real technical adjustment as well. Wow. You guys, thank you so much for taking the time. Do you have any last-minute advice for young listeners who want to pursue a career, you know, being filmmakers and, you know, living their dream out in the bush? Well, yeah, if you want to be an assistant to us, make sure you buy your charcoal before you. <laughs> I would love to be an assistant. Okay, hold on, really quick. Would you guys take me for a week? I mean, I could cook. I could clean. My wife would probably argue with that, but I could clean. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah no, cool. clean, Why clean, not? cooking is good. Yeah, that was so not sincere, Beverly. <laughs> now, look, I think that the, the real thing today... And it's different to when we started as filmmakers. We went out, as Beverly alluded to, we were in love. We still are in love. We were obsessive and passionate about it. Uh, yeah, okay. um, and uh, we really wanted to go out and to, and to live almost a, a selfish lifestyle, doing it for ourselves. So getting out there, driving around, being with lions, for what? For ourselves. We found a way to make careers out of that. Um, then we discovered conservation, or, you know, we were doing it, but we evolved our conservation ethic on that. Today, the urgency is so much more than it was when we started. 
um, we're losing these numbers dramatically. And so that can have two effects on young people today getting into the field. The one is that this is so overwhelming and it's hardly worth trying anymore. Or the other, which I, I promote, is we don't have a lot of time on the present trajectory. We need an army of, of young filmmakers getting out there, covering this, doing it well. It doesn't have to be perfect. It can be their own style. Um, but we need an army of voices out there today yeah. so that everybody in the world is influenced and in, in, in many ways infected by, by the story of hope around these animals. We need a story of hope and it needs to be infectious. I know what, you know what I would say is exactly what you're doing. You are reaching out to a global audience and you're speaking to them all the time. And so, yes, you know, we would say absolutely um, come and use your um, unique talents to, to, and, and your cooking talents to... Um, to <laughs> so, so, so the message is key. Um, and and you know how um, uh, the wilderness affects you and the messages that you're going to be able to get out. And so that's what I really think um, the younger audience needs to do is look at their skills, be innovative, come up with creativity that already is going to impress those that you would like to go and spend time with, whether it is you know Jane Goodall or Sylvia Earle or Bob Ballard or you know Cynthia Moss, whoever it is. Um, let them see your creativity, your dedication, your passion, um, and then it will be easier to get into that field because at least everybody will know that you're not just coming for the ride. You really, you feel it within your heart and you are determined that you are going to be the next person that's going to protect those areas. I liken this to, to um, a canvas with oil painting on it. Um, in that I'm not that concerned about the content on the canvas. So if young filmmakers or photographers, writers, uh, broadcasters want to do something about exploration, about going to the moon, about, I don't know, about lions or about elephants, um, or people, communities, that's the content. Um, and that's great. That's a, that's a creative expression of who we are as homo sapiens. Um, the canvas itself, if we don't protect the canvas, all of those stories are gone. The canvas is the planet. We need to protect this, this planet and we need to be conservationists at our core so that we can express ourselves as humanists, as creators, as musicians, or whatever it is. Without a canvas, we've got nothing. You guys, thank you so much. You said it perfectly. I appreciate everything and all you do. And sincerely, thank you for being a voice for the animals because I, your documentaries are phenomenal. And just, um, yeah, thank you just for all you do. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Robin. Send our regards to your dog, too. Yeah, <laughs> I will. And I'm being serious. Just one week. Can we guys take me in for a week? Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.